You're listening to the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. This is Noah Becker. My name is Stephen Wozniak, and I'm your guest host on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art Podcast. Artist Liz Magor seeks to reveal what is often hidden in plain sight, things that are always there but not always acknowledged. When she explores the detritus that constitutes the periphery of our lives, her work reveals layers of import never previously assigned to the common lost objects that make up a significant part of our many expected and wayward identities and narratives. By resuscitating discarded items and moments from the forgotten past, Magor preserves the steadfast, quiet, utterly necessary dialogue of life in artworks that sometimes act as fastidious simulations of our existence, though that are never the same as the original form or experience. Magor works in numerous three-dimensional and pictorial media, from ephemeral fabrics and robust cast steel to cardboard boxes and even the ash of extinguished cigarettes, and has produced a substantial body of work over the course of her remarkable 40-plus year career. Magor was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Magor's work has been the subject of numerous major survey solo exhibitions, including those at Kunstverein in Hamburg, Germany, Migros Museum in Zurich, Switzerland, the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, Canada, and Triangle France in Marseille, France. Magor has also participated in such venerable international art exhibitions as Documenta, Castle, and the Venice Biennale. She and her works have been written about in such notable international publications as the New York Times, Art News, Art Forum, the Toronto Star, and Art in America, and in such books and catalogs as Elements of Nature, Contemporary Canadian Art, and Immaterial Rules of Contemporary Art, among others. Magor is considered one of Canada's most celebrated fine artists and is the winner of such prestigious awards as the Audane Prize for Lifetime Achievement in the Visual Arts and the Gershon Iskowitz Prize. Also lauded internationally, Magor recently received the French Order of Arts and Letters Medal for her contribution in the arts. Magor lives and maintains a rigorous studio practice in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. She's about to release a large volume of original written content entitled Subject to Change, the newest addition to the University of Concordia Press Text Context series, which seeks to reveal artists' relationship with their work, and includes celebrated artists such as Ken Lum, who I had the pleasure of interviewing on this program. In Subject to Change, Magor uses a narrative to make sense of her own body of artwork and themes, including subject-object relations and transformations, consumption and commodification, human attachment, relationships, and complexities of time, as well as her own life as a feminist artist in a settler colonial society. I am super excited that Liz Magor has come to join me today as a special guest on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast. Welcome, Liz, and thanks for talking a little bit today about you, your work, and now this book, Subject to Change, Writings and Interviews. I will start with a quote from you that's in the book. The transgression of boundaries, the mixing of genres, the overlap of the imagined with the real, these have been art's stock and trade for several generations. To find it all in operation in the general population, therefore, demands a repositioning of the artist's role in the interest of avoiding redundancy. 
The shift might be from object to subject. Consider the found object, an artless thing emptied of meaning and filled with new intent. Consider the found subject, a sliding soul emptied of history and filled with new memories. It's a neat little passage. It sort of obviously highlights pretty big themes in your work that is carried through over the last 40 years or so. Subject to change, writing and interviews includes a great deal of text, almost 300 pages, including catalog statements, essays, conversations, lecture notes, letters with gallerists and writers, and importantly, writings by you, including the book's preface. For someone who is a self-described non-writer with a bias of image over idea, how did you in Concordia University Press get together to organize, edit, and ultimately publish this book about you and your artwork, as well as text by you in some instances, and why, why now? It was totally Jeffrey Little's idea. He's the editor. I wrote these things, as you say, over 40 years, and so often I didn't keep them. I often was writing them on a typewriter and sending them right. by fax to a curator or an editor or something like that. And my files are pretty shitty. You know, my paper world <laughs> is very bad. And so right. I had been asked maybe 10 years ago to see if I could pull some together enough for a publication and maybe I could find five things. And I said, no, you know, it's really pretty paltry. Right. Let's not go there. But Jeffrey, I didn't even know he was working on it. And he contacted me and said, look, I have all of this. He had over two dozen things that he wow. had somehow dug up, I guess, in archives in different places. He lives in Montreal, so he's closer to where I was when I wrote a lot of them. I was living in Toronto then. Uh, so he'd go, go to libraries, uh, art gallery, archives, etc. So I thought, 25? Oh, holy cow, that means I was actually writing. You know, I had, <laughs> hadn't identified any of my activity as writing activity because there was such, they're all short, in fact, right. you know. So it was Jeffrey, and then I said, yeah, well, maybe... Yeah, that's something. And it, it did take quite a few years, but he just kept finding them and finding them. And then I started digging around um, in boxes and different places and finding this and that. And so we found a lot more than we published. And then he also said, let's include works that had words in them. So some of them are kind of installations, but they have words in them. And he very um, cleverly, I think, included them as published like in a book so you see it's quite visual the book is quite you completely reproduced um a book called four notable bakers that is the one where um, i'm comparing bodies to lumps of dough and bread right. as though your body is material so i was thinking you know these bodies are like the stuff i'm using in the studio these bodies we um, work on them without thinking about it. Like we try to keep them from getting really riddled with fat. We try to keep our livers not full of toxins, you right. know, so we're always kind of manipulating these bodies in the same way I was in the studio pushing chunks of rubber. Around, right, right. You know, trying to make things roll or trying to make things, you know, sit up straight and that sort of thing. So that book that's called Four Notable Bakers is strictly images that are drawn from books. And Jeffrey decided to include it as, you know, a book work. 
Or it was a book work, but he did it again. So that's how you get up to 300 pages. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. It's a lot of stuff. Let's talk about a little bit about what you do. Um, you're known as an artist that pursues her work ostensibly as an investigation of relationships, relationships with things and with each other. How do you see yourself in your art? And how do you see your position as an artist among other artists or in the society at large? Probably the, the word that would cover all of that would be that I'm an observer. And so when I started making the things that now I will call art, I was an observer and not so much an artist. My friends were artists. It was like the early 70s. My friends were artists. If they were painters, they were like Frank Stella. Right. If they were sculptors, they were like the California guys like John McCracken. If they were filmmakers, they were probably Andy Warhol-ish or uh, something. And I thought they were great, like cool, great artists. I was going to university kind of studying Slavonic studies, you know, just doing different searching, searching, searching. And I thought what I'm doing is not art because it's not what they're doing. Um, and so I was just observing, wanting in a way, the part that is me in the work is that I'm not satisfied or I'm, or I'm restless, let's say. And I want to not just be in the world, but actually kind of be part of it in a certain way. And I want it to actually go outside of the boundary of myself. So I want to be part of what is immediately around me. So I'm observing the things that are immediately around me. So therefore, I'm not actually commenting on major social things, major social topics, Pop art was really prevalent when I was young, but it, it's, it's about icons, it's about brands, it's about big things. Minimalism was also really prevalent. Those were the two avenues that were offered to me. I thought they were both interesting, but it wasn't giving me back what I wanted. Minimalism was a pretty radical proposition, and I loved the phenomenology of it. I loved that that your body is necessary to be, to, you don't see a minimalist work, you feel a minimalist work. Right. You're, you're, Occupies you're with your it. space, yeah. That's right, it's phenomenological. So that probably, the phenomenology of minimalism was the most important thing that I learned from other art. But the, um, the erasure of all other stimulants, let's say, like images or stories, especially narrative, the erasure of narrative is hard for me to swallow. I needed those things. So that meant I had to invent my own way of working. There were probably other artists working that way, no doubt there were, but they weren't really in my face or in my world. And this is before the internet, so you can't search. This is me living in Vancouver, so I'm not traveling very far. You know, traveling was harder in the 70s. You weren't going to Paris and New York on a regular No, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I was going to Kelowna. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Toronto. That Toronto was a big trip. Um, so Joseph Boyce was working, but I didn't know who he was. Yeah. I also wasn't buying art magazines. I needed to find it here, you know, like like close to me. I didn't, I wasn't doing research. I wasn't just kind of looking to see what other people were doing. I needed to find it here. I had a big deficit, let's say, mm -hmm. a personal deficit in terms of how I connected to things. This would also, of course, be tied into the fact that I was a girl in a mm -hmm. man's world or a boy's world. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of precedents. So I kind of vaguely knew about Louise Bourgeois and, and 
if I did in the 70s, it was before her renaissance, that second right. wind that she had. Joseph Boys wasn't showing in America because of the Vietnam War. I'm not sure of the date when he had that show. I think it was at the Guggenheim. So I didn't know about them, but that's kind of what I wanted to do. Did you pay attention to the other sort of connected movements, the neo-dadists and the Fluxus movements, people like, you know, Yoko Ono or um, Ubantasu or Johns or any of those people? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a stupid No, I know. I just, I, I'm embarrassed to say no. <laughs> no. Okay. That's you know, fine. they all, they all. Well, here's a better question. What, what were your yeah. most significant influences creatively? Writers, authors. Writers, mostly writers. Yeah, Samuel Beckett. I understand you were interested in a lot of the written works of the Beat Generation, specifically On the Road by Jack Kerouac, and that that book <laughs> provided a particular influence of your use of cigarettes, which you've employed numerous times in your work as a, as a medium in your work. Do you, do you want to talk about that or, or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Cigarettes are material. So going back to this thing about wanting to observe the relationship that we have, like we are the subjects, like we, we seem to be so important and, and we have... <laughs> We have the, this relationship with material that we seem to be the boss of, but I know we're not the boss of material. I know that um, it's the boss of me, kind of. And cigarettes are classic mm -hmm. um, bossy material, you know, like <laughs> it, will, it will marry you and it will never divorce you. <laughs> so I kind of was always interested in things like alcohol really interests me too, yeah, because yeah. it's just a material, but somehow it had learned how to overlap its subjectivity to mine. And so cigarettes are great also because they have such a short life. You, you know, yeah. they live and die within five minutes. And then they're also associated with attitude or sexiness or something with mm -hmm. cachet, with um, charisma. There's something also so fascinating about yeah. how that works. So Lots of people have, have examined this relationship of cigarettes to cool or cigarettes to charisma. And it might have something to do with the smoker being a risk taker, meaning, well, what does that mean? Uh, for some reason, we think that's cool to take risks. Right. And maybe I still think that, you know, right. maybe I'm sort of addicted to um, trouble. And those are and those provide perfect avenues for addiction. Fall yeah. <laughs> <All> in tobacco. <laughs> right. Right. So, so going back to the, um, so then, you know, I wasn't so interested in Jack Kerouac. I mean, I was, but again, he couldn't be a model for me. Uh, sure. None of those guys could be models for me, sure. which was so frustrating because right. they were doing kind of what I wanted to do, but big chunks were missing out of their program. Uh, chunks that totally have uh, are connected to being a woman. There are certain things that you experience as a woman that that you kind of want to examine. You maybe even want to talk about it. You sure, know? sure. Um, and they weren't, of course. They were busy with... Um, Indudes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. So much Not later, leading the unexamined dude life. Or no, I guess the examined dude life because they wrote books about it, but yeah. They did. They did a lot. They did a lot. I'm not deriding them, but, um, oh, yeah. but sometimes I laugh at them. Sometimes yes, I of course. Yeah. 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 Just one more thing about cigarettes is that if you associate them with cool, 
And if artists still smoke, I don't know if your circle of friends still smoke, but mine still does. Yeah. And I think yeah, you yeah. are. That's fucking amazing. That <laughs> I don't. I, I don't either that they've made it that far. <laughs> right. But, um, but then I have this other thing that holds me back from admiring it so much. Um, and it is that I don't think artists should be cool. I think they should be hot or warm or something, you know, right. they should be uh, able to be embarrassed and to be humiliated and to be wrong mm -hmm. and cool. You can't, right. You have to cancel a lot of things in order to be cool. That's right. Yeah. You have to cancel any kind of display of emotion. You have to keep it deep, 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 deep. Right. <laughs> so it hurts so, after a while. <laughs> yeah, it hurts after a while. And it's maybe not good for, for art. Yeah, I agree with you. Having developed as a person and artist during a really highly charged and critical political and social climate of the 60s in North America, your work was able to contribute to the development of sort of latent postmodernist feminist movement. What does it mean to be a feminist artist? Or what does that mean to you? And what's it like? to work as a sculptor in what is perceived as largely a man's creative field, which we just sort of alluded to right now. Mm. What, what, I mean, that's a really crucial period and you sort of came through the fire and have continued on and, or do you not consider your work in that way? Do you see a bigger picture? Well, I see a bigger picture, but it's still, I can still include myself as a feminist. I think the, the, the way I, I look now, let, let's, say, let's say I was an indigenous person or a person of color now, how much pressure would I feel to make work about that fact? And if I was an indigenous person or a person of color, I would think I'm, I'm that plus other stuff. Mm -hmm. I have other parts to me. And maybe I'd want to make work about those other parts and not about the fact of my racial identity or... So I felt the same way as a woman. I didn't really want to make work about women's issues. I wanted to make work in a way that feminists were outlining as a possibility, which would mean to include emotion, which would mean to, to include your, your subjecthood, mm -hmm. to um, include valorizing things that had been unvalorized, like narrative, like soft materials. I remember uh, some of the comments about Eva Hesse when she was alive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. were not very complimentary. They mm -hmm. were, she was called touchy-feely. I remember my male colleagues would say, oh, her work is just touchy-feely. That doesn't show up now in these big catalogs that are devoted mm -hmm. to her work. That's all been erased. This is a lot of the, you know, the comments about Joni Mitchell have been kind of erased. Sure, sure. Because now we, we realize she's a genius, you know. Of course. Uh, so uh, I'm getting to your question. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm a digressive uh, <laughs> talker. <laughs> so I wanted to work the way feminism would allow me to work, which would be to explore things that weren't legacy, things that weren't important, that weren't already in history. But I didn't want to actually just deal with topics of, of the fact that I was a woman. Sure. So. So that's how I went. So my colleagues who were women at the time were probably dealing with Freud, talking right. about Freud or Charcot or something like that, right. um, talking about hysteria, looking in old books about women's experience, doing things you know, that displayed how angry we, we, we can be about this. 
But I, I didn't want to do that. I eschewed all of that. I just right. um, went somewhere else. Do you feel that it, it's important to take a sort of wide look, to take a few steps back and act as a, a critic of your own work? How important is that, re reviewing, taking the wide look of your work? Yeah, um, I don't step back very far. Okay. Mo most of the writing is done after the work. So, mm -hmm. and when I was teaching, I would always uh, suggest to students that they write after they've finished a work. They think about it after they've made the work. Think about it afterwards. Write about it because a lot of the writing in the book that I've done with Jeffrey is I'm writing about something I've done. I'm not sure what I've done. And the writing, because language is more precise, I know it better. It's kind of more controllable. Words are, I mean. I can kind of do an excavation a little bit better with language. And so I'll excavate a work, but that will be just months after a work or a year after a wow. work. And, and then I'll for, try to forget so that I can be in the here and now for each work I'm making. So I'm like a dog digging a hole <laughs> and I don't get out of the hole and go up and look at the pile that I've made <laughs> on the side of the hole too often. Because what will I find there? I'll just find more dirt. When you do write that though, does it act as like, um some kind of a touchstone that informs other work or is it just hey it's a time for review and you put it away and you get back into the thick of it back in the no, studio if i do it well it's a revelation it's like going to a shrink where right. you say you know i'm doing this everybody's um, mad at me now and i don't know why and right. then you do a you do a, an examination you say oh yeah now i know why everybody's mad at me so you kind of if i do it well i i have an insight i gain an insight and then that insight becomes useful for the next work. Conceivably, the work improves over time, but I'm not going to judge whether it does or doesn't. I had the pleasure of interviewing a colleague of yours, or I think you guys were colleagues, um, Ken Lum, recently. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ken sort of passed me this question. How did you adjust to the advent of a pandemic as an artist? How did your studio practice change, your focus and attention, and you? over the course of the last few years. Yeah. I mean, some artists loved it. They figured, this is great. I don't have to leave the studio. I can mm -hmm. work continuously. I don't have to worry about working towards a physical show. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to ask you that same silly question, but I'm sure your answer is not, not so silly. <laughs> no, my answer is pretty, you, you answered it for me. I was one of those that loved it. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I don't work for exhibitions. I mean, emotionally, I don't work for exhibitions. In a practical sense, I do. And so if you take the practical away, then I'm left just with me. That's the best possible thing. And then in addition to that, my way of working in the studio is pretty self-sufficient. Um, because, I, because I don't start a work with a, no, with a big notion of how it's going to proceed, mm -hmm. it means I iterate every moment. I'm kind of shifting and changing, asking a question and then... Uh, using the answer as the, the way to go for the next 10 minutes or the next day. So because of that way of working, I have to have a pretty well-supplied studio. I have a, about a thousand square feet and it's full of all the tools and materials that I could possibly need in, for a month, let's say. So it means that that's my favorite place to be and that's my favorite w way to work so that it's very... Um, in the moment is very happening now and if i even have a, a date in the evening or an appointment in the morning 
it ruins the whole day because yeah. I need I need the whole I need this unlimited time to be happy. And so pandemic was two years unlimited time. It doesn't get better. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. <laughs> Score. Yeah. And and no, you, you don't work with assistants or you do, I guess, for maybe public works projects. I do. Yeah. With. Sometimes I bring in um, a, a group of people or two or three people as I get closer to an exhibition, because by then I know what I'm doing and I can, I can hand off some of the process. There's a lot of making, there's a lot sure. of doing. I don't go out to shops at all. I, you know, like shops like a metal shop. Yeah, so you send them out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I don't use the internet in the studio. I don't have internet in the studio. So it really is kind of like a shop or a lab or something. Recently, though, I have now a regular assistant who comes a few days a week because I'm getting sloppier and more impatient it just goes with aging i guess he actually said well do you know the problem is you need a headlamp and you need a better pair of glasses <laughs> so, so he got the glasses for me and he got the headlamp and i said okay josh you're fired I, i'm good now like, it's kind of nice i i have one too that i use yeah <laughs> a headlamp yeah. Shoes. Yeah, why, yeah. I, why i didn't think of that earlier so anyhow i have josh there three days a week and it makes a big difference it's good uh, many of your works from recent pieces like Quaffed and Dressed, which feature laid to rest, color desaturated stuffed animals, to older pieces like Time and Mrs. Tiber, which is a wall of preserved food and recipes on a shelf, sort of frozen in time. They act like shrines or altars that intensify the undertone of violation, sacrifice, and loss, ultimately, for me at least. Talk to me about sort of the intention of these this kind of format versus say uh, a narrative tableau the kind of thing you'd find like in a wax museum or a themed museum or something obviously your work it sort of goes mm-hmm. in this other direction is there mm-hmm. was there a conscious effort to sort of say um, these are going to be more like shrines versus this sort of tableaus i mean you don't work in linear narrative anyways but uh, right that's right. just sort of a contrast yeah i have to think about narrative because because we use narrative in a certain predictable way, and um, uh, I think there's other ways to use it. So one way to use narrative or the narrative impulse is to not supply everything to that narrative impulse. And so let's say I I might liken it to going into a store that isn't organized, that's maybe uh, you might call it a junk store, um, where things aren't organized. So I, I don't call them junk stores, I call them kind of archives, let's say. And I like to go in because things have fallen out of their orbit. They've fallen out of the story that they were produced under. I think a lot about production too, you know, all this stuff that's coming towards us. Uh, We didn't even ask for this stuff, but somehow it's coming at at a pretty fast rate and a pretty huge volume. And so 
probably uh, we jump on a narrative in order to deal with it. Like, what is this for? Mm -hmm. Do I need this? Do I want this? And so those narratives are useful. But then after these things pass through our lives and they're behind us and we're sick of them and we're tired of them, we have no desire for them. They're still hanging around in, you know, huge quantities of it. Right. So that's where I encounter the material world, not at, not at the onset of desire, but at the end of desire when it's leaving. And I question what happened to the desire? What, because the material didn't change. The, the sweater is still pink, it's still fluffy, but I guess pink is not this month's color. So <laughs> I wouldn't use the word shrine exactly, but I do take those things after they're exhausted or after we're exhausted with them, but they're still kind of alive. And I, I just, I guess in, in a way, this is a surreal tack, a surrealist tactic to join it to something else that's unexpected and that livens it up in a whole different way. So I'm actually juxtaposing things that are maybe not, you know, with eyeballs the way surrealists do, maybe not right. fetishistic <laughs> materials that the surrealists use, but, but other non-things, other discarded things will meet discarded things in unexpected uh, conjunctions. So I don't think of them as shrines exactly. They are kind of deadish. That's a true thing. Don't know what to do about that. <laughs> you said in an interview that I thought, I thought this was interesting, that you said you try to overlook the making of something and its journey to exhibition regarding your work, yeah. which, which is interesting, especially in light of your significant consideration of objects, their life and death and rebirth. Why release sort of the art, you know, your, the children, so to speak, and not review that aspect of it? Is that just too like, oh my God, now I'm thinking more about my responsibility to these objects when they now belong in collections and go off to museums and other places? Well, I, they're they're out of my uh, they're they're off my table. They're not under my auspices. I can't control them. I can't control what people think about them. Or, right. you know, maybe I would sometimes want to extend my control into the care of the work. So I do kind of worry about them being looked after. You know, that's why I kind of um, welcome collectors, good collectors who will look after the work, and then I'll just leave it. Then yep. I'll just leave it. There's only so many hours in the day, so I have to stay doing what I can do um, with my, you know, with all my resources, as opposed to trying to stick my finger in every aspect of it. So what are you, what are you working on now? I'm working just at, at this time, I'm working for a, a, an exhibition for my gallery in Paris that will be in the spring. Excellent. Um, some sculpture. Then I'll, as I'm doing that, I'll start start a new uh, bunch of work that's for an exhibition in Toronto at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto, and that's for the fall. So these things kind of, so I'm deeply into the Paris stuff now, and I'm starting to see a break. I think the Paris stuff knows what's happening. Right. Um, I can bring on this new stuff that I don't know what's happening, and I just try to keep it going. I take I take the spring off completely and I go up to an island that I um, am connected to up the coast and because I like to just watch the grass go green so yeah. I go out for May and June sometimes April May June sometimes May June July and I don't do any art I just watch the grass grow or something so that's why that for the other how many months left nine months I'm I'm kind of 
which is kind of perfect, right? That's the term of a pregnancy. It's like you're giving birth to all this art, and, and then you, and then you have maternity leave for three months. I didn't even didn't even do the math, you know. <laughs> well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art. Liz Magor's upcoming book, Subject to Change, Writings and Interviews, published by Concordia University Press as part of the Text Context, Writings by Canadian Artists series, is now available through booksellers worldwide in paperback form. Liz Magor is represented by Catriona Jeffries in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Andrew Kreps Gallery in New York City. To learn more about Liz and her work, go to www.andrewkreps.com and www.catrionajeffries.com. To learn more about the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art, go to www.whitehotmagazine.com And to learn more about me, Stephen Wozniak, your guest host, go to www.stephenwozniakart.com and www.stephenwozniak.com, as well as at stephenwozniakart on Instagram. Thank you again for listening to another great podcast episode of Art World, the white-hot magazine of contemporary art.